Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. Here's Johnny. They're all gonna laugh at you. They're all gonna laugh at you. Get away from her, you bitch. We all go a little mad sometimes. You fly back to school now, little starling. Hello and welcome to another episode of Once Upon a Nightmare. As always, I am your host Lorraine Purden and I am here to discuss the horrors of the world, both fictional and real, and this one is real depending on your views on the subject. This week I'm going back to 2009 and this is The Haunting in Connecticut. Why do bad things happen to good people? You're just a regular family like anybody else. We didn't ask for this, and we didn't deserve it. It's perfect. It's spacious and affordable. I'm just wondering, where is the catch? Well, it does have a bit of a history. Matt, did you find a bedroom? Down here? It's nice and it's cool. Everything's back there. Mm-hmm. things under the floorboards. I've seen this kid almost every day since we've been here. You're scaring me. We'll join the club. So check it out. They'd held seances in this house. People not only contacted the dead, but made things appear. There is something in this house. Something no longer living and not yet passed over. What happened in the house? Something evil. And it wants your son. You must get out now! This film is advertised as real events, but I guess due to the nature of it, that is down to the individual beliefs of what they think. Do I personally believe in this type of thing? I do. Not to the extreme of some, but I do believe that there's something out there. I don't know what it is. I don't want to know what it is. I don't want to personally experience it, but I do feel like there's something out there. Now, I know the problem is with stories like this, they go to such lengths. If you actually look into this story. It's not as wild as the film. It's still not great. Not something I'd want to experience, but obviously it's not as extreme like we see in things like the amateur horror, the conjuring, the entity. They seem quite far-fetched, but some elements, not 
totally out the realm of possibility. Now, the issue with stories like this is you feel like they could have come up with it from watching something like the Amityville Horror and looking into that story. There's a family, the Snedeker family. It consisted of parents Alan and Karma, Carmen, and they had three children and a cousin. And the family pretty much started seeing strange goings on when they moved to this small town in Connecticut called Southington in 1986. They moved into a new home there because their eldest son, Philip, had Hodgkin's lymphoma and he needed treatment. They wanted to be near the hospital. So they all moved there and it kind of goes to pot straight away. It's the same within the film. When they moved into the home, they found this room that caused them a bit of alarm. It was in the basement and it had embalming tables and a variety of tools. The basement would become a bedroom for their two boys, Philip and the younger brother, Bradley. Now, the house was a funeral home and the prior owner, Daryl Kern, has said that prior to him purchasing the home in 1980, it had been the Hallahan funeral home for several decades. Carmen does claim that they were never properly informed about the history of the home until they moved in. And the owners who rented the home say that they did tell them about what went on there. So this is one of those things where, you know, who do you believe? It's someone's word against another unless it's in some form of writing. The film was directed by Peter Cornwell and written by Adam Simon and Tim Metcalf. It's a 15, I'll be honest, when my wimpy horror ways come in. I was like, maybe this should be an 18, but someone else probably wouldn't think that. Why do I do a horror podcast again? Sometimes I really do question it. It had a budget of 10 million and made just over 77.5 million, so it did well. It stars Virginia Madsen as Sarah Campbell, Martin Donovan as Peter Campbell, Carl Garner as Matt Campbell, and Elias Cotius as Reverend Popskew. The Campbells are forced to move to Connecticut due to their son's bad health. Matt. Matt has cancer and is receiving treatment, but it's quite the drive from his current home, so the move is necessary. The home they move into is cheap, but it has a history. It used to be a funeral parlour. But as we soon see, this was not your typical funeral parlour, and the family, especially Matt, begin to experience supernatural goings-on within the home. Now, straight off the bat with this, the credits suck you in. It reminded me of American Horror Story, and you kind of know you're in for something pretty grim. We can also see that the mother is speaking to someone in like an interview form, and it looks like she's making some sort of documentary. So obviously this story got told on within the film, as well as outside of the film. The bad and probably extremely confusing experiences for Matt happened in the house quite quickly, it does get right into it once they've moved into the new home. He's the one who first starts to experience these things that he can't explain. He moves down to the basement and he's on his experimental treatment for cancer. Now, at first, you, like Matt does, he wonders, is everything he's seeing a hallucination? Is it a result of the treatment that he's on? And one of the first things that we really see is when he is in the kitchen with his mother, she's mopping the floor with soapy water, but instead of seeing soapy water, he sees blood. Then we see little things like he's confused about why the plates are where they are, then they fall. And so it's just little things at the start that could be kind of like thought away as, is this medication messing with me? Now, the mopping of the blood scene 
that does actually come from an experience of the real life story, as mentioned by Carmen Snedeker. She has said that she was mopping the floor once and it turned blood red and it smelt of decaying flesh. Now, the issue here for Matt is he's been told by the doctors that if he starts hallucinating and seeing things, he's going to be pulled from the trial. So he keeps this to himself. He's trying to ration it away, and but he knows something's not right. He does kind of mention it to his mother, but not fully. But he kind of brings it all to himself as, oh, this is just me. It's just playing tricks on me. But it's still at the same time, he's like, yeah, something, something's not right here. Now, in the basement, as mentioned in the real story, there was a room down there and they're unable to access it. Now, the thing that creeped me out about this was not only that they're in the basement, but the room had glass walls and you couldn't really see what was going on there and you couldn't get in there. But because of the dark topic of this film, you knew it wasn't going to be something good. And when it got, I don't get the whole basement thing. I know it's a big American thing and I've seen this before, but you know, I lived in America and anytime I had to go down to the basement, I legged it down there and I legged it back up. So there is no way that I would ever live in a basement. But especially I think some of them, because some of them don't look like a fully formed room. They look more like a bit of a storage room. And I think if it was like a properly kind of, I don't know, room, <laughs> I don't know how to put it, then maybe I would. But I wouldn't have gone down to this one and I especially wouldn't have gone down to it if it had that other room there. But Matt's kind of like, I'm going to be thrown up a lot. I don't want to be disturbing people. So I'll go down there out of the way just to kind of do you all a favor. Now, the experiences with Matt, it really brings along a big change in his personality. He becomes withdrawn. He gets angry. And he does eventually manage to get into this strange room in the basement. But we can see that the room, it does something to him. The house does something to him. But again, you're kind of like, is this the treatment? That's what he's thinking. We know obviously there's something going on, but it's just all very confusing at this time. Plus, he looks like he hasn't slept in weeks. When his family does visit, he takes his brother down and he puts him on the, like there's a gurney in there and he starts spinning him around very fast. But while he's doing that, we see flashes of like a coffin and people and he appears to be in some sort of trance and his bro brother is pleading for him to stop and he won't. His brother can tell that something's not right. But again, he probably puts it down to what he's going through. Now, obviously, it looks like he hasn't slept. So sleep deprivation can do serious things to you. So they can kind of, you know, give a reason for why this is happening. Matt is a young man going through an awful disease. And, it, you know, it should be a time when he's like out with his friends, having fun. But he is away from all of them. He's ill, he's tired, and you could probably forgive him for not feeling too chipper all the time. But his brother looks really scared. And we look into Matt's eyes when he does this to his brother. And it, it's not just siblings playing. Like I know sometimes when you see stories of, especially brothers, they can go a bit over the top with how they play with each other, it can get a bit rough. But it just looked like he hated him. There was evil there. And Philip's younger brother, Bradley, has actually confirmed that this did happen and it was quite scary for him. As you can also imagine, this has a massive impact on all the family, financially and emotionally. All the efforts are going in to try and make him better, which I completely understand. And everyone's lives are changed to suit Matt's. And of course, it's in America, so the bills are racking up. So added pressure there. But the dad seems to have a big issue with what's going on. Like the mother 
the mother seems like she's doing all she can and it's not about how she feels. Anytime she has like her moments of where she needs to cry, she does it on her own. The dad's not like this. He makes these comments. He makes digs. You can tell he's pissed off, but he doesn't know how to keep it to himself. And I get the frustration. And But I think, you know, there's a time and a place for stuff like this. And I'm not saying he shouldn't be concerned, but you would, you would hope in a situation like this that they could work together. But they're very separate and they're trying to get through this in their own way. And I can't imagine it taking a toll on its marriage. Like, I mean, obviously, I've never been in a situation like this and I hope I never am. And there's also the helplessness of not being able to cure Matt's condition. When you have a sick child, you want to be able to take it away. And when you can't and you see everything that's happening, it's going to cause problems. So up until now, we've been seeing some stuff and everyone's losing their shit. And it's just a really unhappy environment. And then the film really goes into the whole supernatural element of it. But these scenes were all made up from the film and for the film. And that is when we see Jonah. But I have to say, it's pretty scary. This did freak me out. So they find out that the place was owned by a Ramsey Aiken, who was played by John Blusner. He had an assistant, Jonah, and he was played by Eric Berg. And from what I could tell, it was like Matt was seeing everything through him. Not in him, but from his point of view. And sometimes he would look at Jonah, but sometimes it's like we got to see through Jonah. And you can tell that what's happening to Jonah, he's not exactly happy. I thought he wasn't. Jonah is used as a medium to speak uh, in a seance. They speak through him. And these seances were held through Ramsey with members of the community. Now, the seances really became a big thing when people would go and visit and we would see people being carved into, they'd have these words put on them, they'd have their eyelids cut off. And it, it was just times where you had to look away. And I know some people, they like to go deep into all this kind of supernatural thing, but, you know, don't go that deep. It becomes clear that the house wants Matt to see more, to see what horrors have taken place there. And he is seeing more and it's changing him more and more. And the family have said that Philip did change. He became mean. He became dark and violent. And he even attacked his cousin that was there, Tammy. And this put him into a psychiatric unit where he stayed for 45 days. And that's what we see here. We see how it's making Matt mean. I mean, we see what he did to his brother, but he's just got a look on his face that you wouldn't want to be left alone with him. But it doesn't just stop at Matt. So at the start, it's all through him. We see it through the siblings and through uh, Wendy that is staying there as well. So when Billy is hiding, he's one of the brothers. He's in this kind of like lift, you know, where you put the dishes dishes in and you can move it up from upstairs to downstairs. But when this happens, we see a figure behind him when he's trapped in the dishes, uh, where the dishes lift is. So you can see that it's becoming more and more. And he sees it and he's screaming and shouting. And that's really scary. And when Mary's leg falls into the like the attic, we then get to see some photos and a box of what looks like maybe dried up leaves or something or at, the, at first glance. But this, this is dried up eyelids. We see Wendy getting attacked in a shower. She gets covered in the shower curtain. So more and more stuff is happening to them. And apparently that happened actually in the film. Uh, Carmen, 
Carmen's face got covered. It wasn't her whole body. And her knees sat to come and rescue her. And also they see lots of flickering. And they're all just kind of realizing that all is not what it seems. They find pictures of dead people in the home, which is something the Snidekers said happened. Now, if it was a funeral parlor, taking pictures, is that normal? I had a wee gander online and apparently it's a thing for some to take pictures of the dead, a tradition. And of course, you can go a lot online and Google about pictures of dead bodies in funeral homes, but all sorts of disturbing shit comes up. So before Wendy had been attacked, Matt had confided in her about what's been going on. And she does go to a library to see what she can find out. And that's when we find out about Jonah and Ramsey. But they also look for some other help. So when Matt was in hospital, he meets Reverend Popskew. And this guy is kind of talking to him about what's going on and offers help. And here's my card. And they do call him. He does call him because he wants someone to talk about. And this is when we kind of learn about what's really been going on. So here we learn about necromancy and ectoplasm and all sorts of messed up shit that went on in the funeral home. Why do people try this shit? I'm not fully sold on it, but I'm sold on it enough to leave it alone. I probably mention that quite a lot. I leave the shit alone. <laughs> don't come for me. We have enough terrifying people in the living world. We don't need to be bringing them back from the dead. They can get up to all kinds of mischief. So necromancy is a way to communicate with the dead, a practice of black magic. It's used to obtain information, you know, about what could happen in the future. Ectoplasm is a substance that comes from the body of a spiritualist medium when they're in like a trance. And we see this with Jonah. He's in a seance. He looks terrified. It's scary. And this stuff is coming out of his mouth. And it's really weird missing because everyone's, there's a few people there and they're, they're looking a bit like, holy shit. But there's this one woman, she's loving it. She is lapping that shit up. But yeah, not something I want to do. The reverend does try to explain though to the mother what is going on, but she's really reluctant to listen. And I think as she starts to experience more and more of the bad things that are good in the house, then she's kind of happy to have him back. Now, he himself isn't well, but he wants to help. And the reverend in this was used solely for the film because this didn't happen. Matt didn't meet someone, or Philip, should I say, didn't meet someone in the hospital. But let's not forget about the dad before we go further on. He has now officially lost his shit. He comes back drunk and he's such an asshole. We kind of don't like him the whole way through. And he terrifies the family by coming in and he's shouting and he's loud and he then takes all the lights out because he doesn't want them wasting electricity. Now, the reason they've got a lot of these lights on is because they're all scared and he's way too busy having a pity party to help actually support his family. It's all about him and not what the others are going through. And you kind of really hate him in this moment. I didn't feel sorry for him here. I was just like, you're an asshole. But apparently this is true. This story is true. Now, he wasn't drunk, but he did, uh, Alan Snedeker did come into the house and take the light bulbs because their electricity bill was high and he was sick of seeing lights in the house. It kind of then all ramps up from here, if it can get any worse. The horrors of the house come to light even more. And this is where it was just all for the film. It didn't happen in real life. And like I said, with most of these films, they really do tend to ramp it up. Matt wants to burn the house down. He finds, he you know, he's told about all these multiple bodies in the wall. And there are a lot of bodies in the wall. It's all very dramatic. It looks like he's lost his mind because as he comes back to the house, uh, Wendy and the kids are in there and 
he's got an axe. It does look like we're going to have a bit of a Butch DeFeo moment here as he's going to come in and kill him. But he's not. He's coming in to get them out. And because he he's dying from this cancer treatment, he thinks he's already dead. He's happy to kind of sacrifice himself to get rid of all these evil demons. And it's really quite sad, though, when Matt goes in and tries to take it all on. And he does, I think he does die. And of course, they use all this music to bring out the feelings because it's in his mom's arms as well, because she manages to smash in and try and get him. And um, but they do bring him back to life. But that whole scene of it's so fast and quick and we can see the despair in his parents. You know, this is when you see the dad actually really, I think this is the first time I kind of really felt his despair. Like, I think maybe I was being a bit unfair to him throughout the film. I I didn't have any time for him. But like I said, I haven't had to go through this. But this is the moment that you're like, no, he he does. You know, he gives a shit, but he, this is where I really felt it. But they do manage to bring him back to life, which is obviously good. And this is when we kind of see Jonah leave, but it looks like uh, the Reverend can see him. Like Jonah's been freed because Jonah died. He was burnt and Matt can no longer see him. So that's probably a good sign for Matt. Not so much for the Reverend. I haven't seen a second one. There is a second one, but I haven't seen it. So I don't know what happens. But in real life, they did exercise the house. That was on September 6, 1988. And they didn't burn the house down and this exorcism apparently got rid of all these demons and that ended the haunting within the house. Now, Sarah does do a speech about how it really, you know, what really happened. And she's like, I don't care what ha whether people believe it or not. And, you know, I get that. We can all have our opinions about certain things, but there's always a chance. Yes, this story is so far-fetched and I myself find it hard to believe a lot of it, but I guess there's always a chance for something. You know, we have so many, when you get these things, you have so many strange stories and you kind of think to yourself, they can't all be lying. You know, they can't all be making it up or can they? I suppose when it comes to money, people will do anything. So when it comes to the real story, which they didn't put into the film, and that is the sexual abuse of Carmen Alan and the niece by the demons. They all apparently were raped by them. And that kind of takes up a massive notch then when you talk about things disappearing, people being seen, strange noises and that kind of thing. When you go to that, it really kind of heightens it. And they didn't put that in the film. And, you know, as we saw from the film, The Entity, you know, we see this happening, but there's no visual person there. And that's, terrifying. What are you going to fight off when there's nothing there to fight off? But despite the attacks, they never left the home for another two years. And that's when I kind of think to myself, if that was going on, wouldn't you just leave? But then did they have anywhere to go? I mean, I think I'd probably sleep in my car rather than stay in that. But like I said, haven't experienced it. Now, like any well-known haunting, you can't have it without thinking of paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were brought in to work on this house by the Snedekers. You may know them from the films like The Conjuring. They worked on Amityville. And the owners of Amityville have come forward and said, nothing ever goes on here. And that's the same with the owner of this house. She thinks the whole thing is ridiculous. The Warrens do believe there was a present there, but... A presence there, but the Warrens 
you either believe them or they don't. You don't. It's kind of up to you what you think of them. Some people think they're frauds, and some people think they know their stuff. Lorraine herself has said that she did experience an evil being in there, so they decided to spend the night. She said in the master bedroom there was a trap door where the coffins were brought up, and during the night you would hear the chain hoist as if coffins were being brought up. But when Ed went to check, there was nobody there. Think of that what you will. Unfortunately, though, Philip Snedeker, he did eventually pass away on the 9th of January in 2012 from cancer. He did go into remission for a while, but it did come back. He had four children and also worked as a truck driver. And he was only 38 years old when he died. Lorraine Warren has stated that the film is very, very loosely based on the actual events. So, do you believe the current owner that nothing happens there and the house is not haunted and it never was? Or do you believe the Schnittakers and the Warrens that something actually did go on there? Let me know what you think. And that is my little take on the haunting in Connecticut. And I also have a little promo for you. If you want to go have a listen to that, it will be on at the end of this episode. And that is for the true crime podcast, Beyond the Rainbow. But as always, thanks for listening to my podcast episode. And don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. And for any behind the scenes information, you can go to Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast, Twitter as a Nightmare Pod, Facebook as Once Upon a Nightmare. Or you can email me at onceuponanightmarepod at gmail.com. I never get emails. Someone send me a nice email. <laughs> thanks for listening. Stay safe. And I will chat to you soon. Bye. Darkcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. I'm CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, true crimes of the LGBT. My episodes focus on crimes committed by and against the LGBTQ community. I've covered cases you probably have heard of, such as Matthew Shepard, Brandon Tina, and the Orlando Pulse nightclub massacre as well as some lesser-known cases like the murder of Ray Hainish, the Australian Gay Beat murders, and the suspicious disappearance of Lisa Lynn Stone. I cover cases brought to me by listeners like Penny Brummer, who I believe was wrongfully convicted, taboo cases such as lesbian corrective rape and murder in South Africa, and Pray the Gay Away camps. I discuss gay serial killers, women who pretend to be men to hook up with other women, and trans murders. I'm opinionated and uncensored. I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but surely I'm someone shot at tequila. No matter what your gender or orientation in life might be, please join me as I tackle rainbow crimes in search of unicorn justice. Remember, it's not a crime to be gay, unless you're a murderer. <laughs>